Welcome to the Show Me Institute podcast. I'm Zach Lawhorn from Show Me Opportunity, and today I'm joined by Elias Chapellis, David Stokes, and Avery Frank from Show Me Institute. Elias, a couple of weeks ago, Governor Parson issued some line item vetoes, biggest budget in state history. The vetoes added up to a little bit over half a billion dollars. As you looked through the things that he crossed out with his pen, did anything jump out? Well, the first thing that jumped out was that he should have vetoed more things. Um, there, This budget, as you mentioned, being one of, well, the largest in state history, roughly double what it was five years ago, There, it was just riddled with earmarks. There was um, plenty of funding for, you know, rifles for a local, uh, it was rifles for a local police station, you know, various um, road projects that only would only benefit small towns. Um, just a ton of different little projects for various areas that really should be funded by local tax dollars. And for the most part, these are projects that local areas are already considering, but they wanted the state to throw in there. And so what we saw this legislative session on top of a variety of other you know, dysfunction uh, was that the um, equalizer amongst, you know, getting things across the uh, finish line at the end was just giving everyone what they wanted in the budget. And so then the governor came back in and said, well, some of these things, not so much, but I wouldn't go so far to say that the governor was, um, you know, being too fiscally sound with what he was doing, even though that was the explanation he gave, because ultimately the next day he signed um, the rest of the bills for the legislative session that will increase state spending by more than the $550 million he vetoed the day before. So at the end of the session, there was some, or throughout the session, there was some horse trading. And as a result, a bunch of uh, legislators got in some pet projects. And this seems pretty par for the course. Some of them thought maybe, let's just give it a shot. It Maybe it's something that we should fund locally, if it should be funded by government at all. But let's just put it in there and see if it gets across the finish line. Is that an accurate read? Yeah, I would say that's pretty close. Uh, earlier... In the legislative session, I think I mentioned maybe on this podcast that one of the riskiest things in Jefferson City is when the legislature has more money than they know what to do with. And so everyone, you know, had their various projects. And now what you're seeing is with the governor vetoing $550 million of them, you know, the those vetoes weren't evenly distributed across the state. And so there were some pet projects that received that still kept their funding, some that didn't. And so now you know, some of those legislators that, um, you know, were involved in some of that horse trading now feel like they, uh, you know, they were slighted by the governor in that case. Is there any, are there any projects in particular that stuck out to you, kind of headline items? From the vetoes? Yeah. Uh, I think the items that were brought up the most in the news were uh, St. Charles projects. I think most of the earmarked projects for St. Charles were vetoed. You know, it's hard to you know, say exactly why those were, but I mean, there were, there were vetoes, um, for some Springfield projects, um, a few other areas. So it, they were kind of, they were distributed across the state, but I, I think St. Charles got the, uh, received the worst end of it. You said that if it were up to you, the vetoes would have gone further. Were you surprised that this governor got to half a billion dollars? I was surprised he got there simply because, uh, they're, there was plenty of things that were vetoed that weren't even general revenue. So a lot of times when you're looking at line item vetoes, uh, you're really talking about general revenue. The, so the state income and sales taxes. And so you're looking at, um, you know, well, go, looking into the future, you know, how are revenues going to look? How is the state going to continue growing? And, you know, maybe 
that excess, you know, you could save money there and, you know, say that's money for schools or something else. But the governor was actually vetoing funds that were federal, which a lot of times the state's very loose with giving those out, or um, some dedicated other funds. So there, there were a lot of vetoes for things that uh, the governor mentioned, you know, really this should be funded by different means or it shouldn't be funded by the state at all. Um, but ultimately, the general revenue was the um, the biggest component of it. But like I mentioned before, the the biggest thing here was that while the governor said this was an exercise in fiscal restraint, the budget is still the largest ever, and there and he signed more bills that will cost more next year. So the the budget's bigger; it's going to keep getting bigger. And so I'm not uh, you know I'm not overly excited by what the governor uh, did. And the concerning thing is, you know, just not about the veto. The vetoes were all good. There, sh- there should have been more, perhaps. But I don't think there was one bad veto in there. But the concerning thing is that the legislature seems to be getting in the habit of fen- sort of following the federal model of just using funds to just pay for local stuff, right, right, right and left. I don't think state government has done this nearly as much. So to see some such substantial use of state funds for local projects is troubling, and it's my hope that as the federal stimulus and various other federal largesse of the the COVID era, as that fades out over the next couple of years, that that will go away. But I hope that the legislature isn't getting in the habit of funding local needs with state with state money, because I very much hope if that continues, then our future, then the governor next year and the future governor after that, I hope will be even far more stringent with the use of the veto pen. Well, because just real quick, the to add on to what David said, there was the issue of you know scaling back the size of the state government after you know this federal. Um, spending. And so what you're going to see is where these earmarks did make it through, where the governor didn't veto them, where this federal money went, um, it's going to be much harder to cut in the next few years. Or you're going to see more and more articles or, you know, whatever about how this is getting receiving less money or this is getting cut, you know, whatnot. Well, really what's happening is we're seeing an unprecedented stretch of government growth. And it's going to be very, it's much easier to stop it before, you know, the state starts picking up the bill for all these local projects, it's much easier to stop it beforehand than going back in the years to come to say, okay, well, here's this program that, you know, that you can't really afford. Okay, good luck. You know, local governments uh, figure it out. Sure, sure. Genie back in the bottle, toothpaste back in the tube, all that stuff. Um, So the legislators had these pet projects. They sent them to the governor. He vetoed them. Is that uh, does that close the book? What what can these uh, legislators do if they still um, aren't happy with uh, the governor's decision? Well, there's certainly some discussions about trying to override the governor's vetoes Uh, that will require two thirds majority. The legislature will be going back in September, I believe, for that. And so there's some discussion of that. But overriding budget vetoes are a little bit more difficult than um, other bills just because um, one of the tools one of the other tools the governor has is that he can restrict uh, the spending of funds so when the governor vetoed a lot of these items he gave the explanation that he was you know trying to keep the state's uh, you know fiscal balances in check you know he's trying to keep the budget balanced and you know if the legislature goes back and says well actually no you need to fund my project he can look at it and say well revenues are you know revenues are down i'm just going to restrict the funding for it and so you don't actually get you never get that money in at all and so 
there, I, I would assume there will be some discussions between the legislature and the governor before the veto session to see, you know, whether this is just a exercise of, um, in futility here, but we'll, we'll see. I do think there, I do think there are discussions of, you know, overriding some things and maybe there is, um, you know, some compromise to be had because I think that there is, you know, the discussion is that there's, you know, roughly an $8 billion surplus in Jefferson city. So there, there are people that would like to spend some of that money. I would prefer that money go back to taxpayers, but you know, going forward, if revenues do decline, uh, the governor has, has a lot of tools at his disposal of what to do to keep keep things in check. And we think veto session in September? I think so. Okay. Um, all right, David, one of the things that was not vetoed by the governor was the a bill that allowed uh, municipalities across the state to consider putting bills uh, out for a vote on freezing property taxes for seniors. And one of the places that is considering this is St. Louis County. You've been talking about it for a few weeks. There was a meeting uh, last week that you attended. What's the update on um, that situation? And there's another meeting tomorrow because a lot of people, including myself, who intended to testify at that meeting, let's just, it ran out of time. So we have our testimony up at showmeinstitute.org. Anybody, anybody can check it out. And it's, it's, real, it's very interesting. I'm hopeful that the county doesn't pass it. I'm hopeful that there's enough votes on the council to, uh, to stop it. And if it does pass, I'm hopeful that the county executive will, will veto it. Yeah, I had to get back to our veto co- conversation. I think a lot of counties around the state of Missouri are going to start doing this because it's very, as somebody on my Twitter feed said, an economist who was chimed in on it, said it's just a classic example of something that's politically popular but economically bad but it's politically popular and politicians like to do politically popular things and especially to for a group like seniors that is concerned about this and and votes as frequently as they do so very much hopeful that the county does not pass this they they were expected to potentially pass it last week and they did not so that's good news there i think it's going to be even more difficult to reject it in many more uh, outstate Missouri counties. Uh, and it'll keep me busy testifying against it around the state for the, next, for the next year or two. So maybe I'm the one who benefits the most from all this. But the fact of the matter is that restricting our property tax base is a terrible public policy move. And this is every bit, this freeze for seniors is better described as a tax increase for non-seniors as as it is a freeze for the senior community because unless you're cutting spending and restricting the growth of government to actually cut spending and limit it then other people non-seniors especially the commercial sector perhaps the agricultural sector they're going to get hit by it as local government talks about funding the things that they they want unless they want to follow a strategy of getting the state to pay for everything as we just discussed in the the prior segment here so very much hope that this fails in st louis county hope it fails around the state i wish the governor would have vetoed the bill but it's just a classic example of of politically popular but bad public policy can we and just if i said that whole statement without popping any peas into this microphone i'm worth that is, I'm worth every penny. You did not, but it was a uh, it was a good effort. Um, just real quick, do you mind if we do uh, a rapid fire um, 
segment of some of the pushback that you've been getting, just some of the, the yeah, FAQs absolutely. on this? Okay, number one, uh, seniors are on a fixed income. Why isn't this a good policy? They can't just go out and make more money, so why shouldn't we freeze their property taxes? Well, many seniors are on a fixed income, but I don't, I don't see how that applies really. On Seniors are wealthier on average than, than other people. That's just a census fact that the wealthiest cohort of people in America is is a I think it's 65 to 74 the second wealthiest is 55 to, to 64 and that's and then above 75 is wealthier is also one of the wealthier groups so why you're freezing the property taxes on on the wealthiest groups of Americans of Missourians I think is a, a very bad idea we shouldn't be freezing it for anybody we shouldn't be playing off one age group or one income group against each other. One of the nice parts about property taxes is that while the valuation is different based on what you own, the rate you pay is the same. And when you take that away by freezing senior property taxes and therefore having a whole group of voters who will be voting going forward uh, without paying the repercussions of the new increase if they vote for a tax, that's very troubling. And I hope that wasn't one of your next rapid fires that I jump the gun on now the second one is uh property tax funding a lot of it goes to public schools seniors they they oftentimes don't have any students in the public school system so why should the ever-increasing property taxes go to fund schools that they don't have students in because 20 years ago 30 years ago perhaps a bit more those same seniors had children oftentimes in the public schools and there was a prior generation of seniors who were were paying their taxes at the time to fund the education for the children of the current group of seniors. So I believe, I think you said it, Zach, it's uh, pulling the ladder up out of the, as you, as you escape out the, the trap door, pulling the ladder up behind you. So no, that's a, uh, this is why we like a wide tax base for whatever the policy is. You set the tax base as wide as possible so that it can be as low as possible and the idea that this generation of seniors isn't using services, well, they use them not in the cosmic scheme just a few minutes ago. Uh, in reality, maybe about 25 to 30 years ago. And I don't, I don't agree with that argument either. And the last one, do you know any senior citizens or are you, in fact, a senior citizen yourself? I am not a senior citizen. Based on the hate mail that I've received and the other comments I received, I do know many senior citizens. Uh, I proudly can tell you that all of my parents, my mom, dad, stepmom, stepdad are still alive, still with us, still in St. Louis County. All of them think this is a terrible idea. And I'm sure there are many seniors who, look, are they going to take the tax break if it's given to them, the tax freeze? Sure, I think they will. But I hope that many seniors can realize that setting different Setting different groups against each other is a bad public policy. And then briefly before we move on, because I don't want to be flipping about it. It is an issue. Um, there are programs in Missouri designed to help keep low-income seniors in their homes, correct? The Circuit Breaker program is a state program that does exactly that. And we've testified in favor of expanding it and solidifying it in the last legislative session at Chomi Institute. We've always been in support of this program. Uh, the people, the group out there, 
pushing this tax break, this tax freeze for seniors, has previously worked on improving the circuit breaker program, and we fully agree with them on that. So yes, the circuit breaker is a good program targeted at lower income seniors, helping them with their property taxes for this purpose. All right, moving to another local story just next door in St. Charles County. They are expanding their network of license plate readers. So these are cameras, sensors that are set up uh, on major roadways and they're designed to scan license plates as people drive by. So what are some of the reasons that they're giving for this expansion and what do you think about this expansion? Well, I think that this expansion is terrible and very, very frightening and I've learned that these things are becoming more and more common on public and private land, public and private property. They're used in Columbia, they're used in Springfield, they're used throughout St. Louis County, many municipalities, and now they're being, the current expansion is in St. Charles. And I think it's deeply troubling that as we just go about our daily lives, we're being tracked, surveilled, and monitored by, by government technology to know where our car is and where we've been. And if you... If, I'm also troubled that so many people appear not to be troubled by it. Like the lack of it bothering people bothers me. Uh, what it's being used for is comparing the license plate it reads to active warrants out there for certain cars that people are looking for. Uh, it's being used, the post-dispatch story on St. Charles said, you know, if they get a, a criminal pattern and they want to go back and find the certainly certain suspected cars where they've been traveling to help them in their investigation for certain crimes they can use it for that i don't doubt that right now the police are using it for legitimate purposes and are getting rid of the data after a set amount of time as they state they are even with all of that i still don't think that Ordinary Missourians should be tracked and surveilled by government as we travel around the state. And I think it's a, another terrible public policy and deeply, deeply frightening, deeply reminiscent of the steps towards the, of the more nightmare scenarios of 1984 or what we see currently in China, how they, they're surveilling you constantly. Everything you do in, in China is being monitored at all times. I'm not saying that we're here. I'm not saying we're here in America at that level, but I want to oppose steps to get us there. And I think this whole move is troubling. And I hope a lot of local officials stand back and say stop and start rejecting it. Are these scanners in place uh, in other uh, cities around not only the St. Louis metro area, but uh, in the state of Missouri? Do you know? Oh, yeah. Springfield has them. Columbia has them. Lots of places in St. Louis. I assume plenty more that I haven't quite read about in the research over the past week. So they're becoming more and more common and they're becoming more, they're common in homeowners associations, I'm told. Representative Tony Lavasco out of St. Charles was telling me he understands there are home subdivisions and homeowner groups putting them in on, on private property. I'm not saying it's illegal what they're doing there and I'm well aware that you don't have some expectation of privacy as you drive the public roads. So I'm not saying it's illegal. I'm saying it probably, it perhaps should be illegal and more so i just i hope we all step back and get concerned about where this can go and if this is the type of society we really all want to be in of being constantly surveilled and monitored by the government as we travel around or by or by private actors as well like the hoas and the the subdivisions and the enormous 
intricate system they have set up in St. Louis Hills down in South St. Louis City, where a lot of private businesses and homes have all connected into one security system. Again, not saying it's illegal and not denying they have the right to do it, but I do find it, I do find it terrifying. Do you make a, dis- a distinction in the way you think about this between the license plate scanners and the red light cameras that we, we've seen around the area? And, and, some, and correct me if I'm wrong, but they were tried in the city a few years ago, right? And then we're, we stopped doing red light cameras. Well, the Supreme Court declared them illegal for a number of reasons, including, you know, there was no, no due process. You know, the camera saw, you do, saw a car do something and then sent somebody a fine in, in the mail without not knowing for sure who was driving that car or, or anything. It's not illegal to lend your car out to somebody. It happens all the time. So the Supreme Court ruled red light cameras illegal. This, I guess, defenders of this traffic license plate readers would say they're not convicting anybody of a crime off of this like a red light camera was doing. They're simply tracking people, storing the data for potential investigations down the line, and comparing it currently to a system of outstanding warrants. And I don't doubt that it's... The stories of effectiveness, I'm sure, are true. They've been able to catch some wanted criminals with them and solve some, solve some crimes with the use of the with the use of the data. Uh, to that extent, it's maybe a different concern than the red light cameras, but still deeply, deeply troubling that as we move about, we're being monitored by by the government at all times. And I think if you care about liberty, I'm surprised that more people out there don't care about this violation of it. And lastly, before we move on, in St. Charles County, at least, is this a done deal? Is there any part of the process uh, left or any public comment that people can make? I don't know if it's a done deal. I don't think it is. I think there's probably time to to stop it. And even if you couldn't stop it now, you certainly, they can always get rid of them. Like, it's never a done deal. The county council or the city councils for whatever cities these are going in could could hopefully say no, stand athwart history, and yell stop here. Say, no, this is not the type of society we want. And I hope that in St. Louis, I hope they're out the state of Missouri. Again, I know they're in Springfield. I know they're in Columbia. I know they're in parts of St. Louis County. They're probably in many other places, too. I just do not not aware of it right now. I hope people start pushing back and saying no. All right, so uh, during this episode, we've talked about a few things that we think Missouri is doing poorly. Avery, you and David in our upcoming annual report wrote an article about a state that you think um, is doing a lot of things correctly, and there are some lessons that Missouri can learn from this. What state is it, and what are some of the things that you think they're doing well? So I know we talk about them a lot, but we're talking about Florida. They seem to be the leader in education and taxes and a lot of other things. And the first thing that comes to mind when education this whole deal we're talking about is they saw i'm not here to argue about covid but they saw that virtual learning for these kids i mean they weren't learning anything and they tried to open these schools back asap and i mean i was in school during covid with the virtual learning and i can tell you like i was paying for classes and i still was not paying that close attention like i had my phone to play with roommates were coming in my room and I'm like these are classes I majored in and I wanted to take and was paying to take and I still had trouble paying attention so I can only imagine what a fourth grader on a laptop was doing when they were learning about math or something and I saw it firsthand I went I was a boy a tutor at the boys and girls club for a whole summer after COVID and I can tell you these kids did not know anything from what from virtual learning they didn't know anything and I was just completely in shock 
about what was going on. And we saw it in the scores. And Florida saw it, and they got rid of that as soon as possible, got the kids back in school. Because Florida, they're wholeheartedly committed to education. Just this past session, I mean, Ron, the Governor DeSantis was determined to get a lot of education bills passed. And they did. He promised and they delivered. They got bills for increasing teacher salaries. They expanded school choice. They protected parental rights. They did all these things that all of our Missouri politicians were saying they were going to do but didn't do. And, I mean, Florida's dedication to education is just its paying off. I mean, in fourth grade math, they're number four in the country, and they're number three in the country in fourth grade reading. And not just, and you're like, oh, well, there's a bunch of rich people moving to Florida. I mean, it's all, everyone's going there for the tax break, so of course their scores are higher. Well, they actually even do better in low income and other groups like that. So for low income fourth graders, they are number one in both reading and math, which is like completely decimates that whole, oh, all the rich people are moving to Florida argument. For black students, they're number two in math and number three in reading. For Hispanic students, they're number two in math and number one in reading. These are just groundbreaking statistics to show that just a dedicated focus on education and expansion of school choice has payoffs, has dividends. In Missouri, just we keep sitting on our hands, we don't do anything. And we get we keep decreasing and sliding down the list compared to everyone else. And isn't it a situation where they're not just maintaining high scores? Florida was also underperforming, or at least middle of the pack, yeah. looking back 10, 15 years ago. So it's a story of improvement, not yeah. just they've always had good schools. They still have good schools. So um, it's not analogous to Missouri. It's we were yeah. 20 years ago, we were kind of in the same situation, and they've been improving. Now they've gone way ahead. And, I mean, other states like Tennessee – like we were way ahead of Tennessee where I'm from in 2012 and then 2012 Governor Haslam started making dedicated efforts to increase education and then Bill Lee is built on that and they've caught up and they've passed us and it's like we were way ahead of Tennessee like way ahead of them and now they've they're tied with us and ahead of us in other categories and it just shows what focusing on education can do for you all right so we've got education what else are they doing right they're actually also improving in crime. This is, in the past 50 years, this is the lowest amount of juvenile crime they've had. And that's largely in part of their just youth programs. They do a lot of youth outreach programs with Christian groups and non-Christian groups. And they do a really good job on focusing on the youth because they want to Pairing youth with increased education means you have more kids ending up at high school graduations than in juvenile detention centers. And when you give them something to work towards, when you tell them that they're not a victim, that they can succeed in this country, that they can grow, it helps improve their state of mind. It's not such a doom and gloom, I'm going to do other things that I shouldn't be doing. They believe in themselves, they believe in this country, and it pays off with their crime rates. They're doing great at recruiting international soccer superstars to come to the state. They're, they're uh, crushing everybody else on that one. Just their general population growth is, is interesting, though, because they, are the, they have the highest population growth of all, of all of our states. So people want to move there. And what's statistically unusual about that is that they're already you know, the fourth largest state. So they've got tons of people, but they're still 
They're still growing. They're still people are still going there because of just a lot of good things happening there. And they continue, most importantly of all, for all these education rankings that every said, most important of all, they still continue to dominate in SEC football recruiting. And that's really the thing that, that matters the most. Although I think Texas is a, up there too. Football recruiting and international soccer stars, two pages of our blueprint. Those are those are two areas that we focus heavily on here at the Show Me Institute. So Your support of the Show Me Institute. Right. Missouri is trying to get better with the new NIL thing. Um so David, talk to me about Ann Avery. Talk to me about transportation. Is there anything that Missouri can learn from Florida about the way they fund their roads? There's a new private train system serving the eastern half of Florida, Miami, Fort Lauderdale, Orlando, and it is becoming unbelievably popular. And it's just it's a fully private passenger train system like commuter rail, but going far beyond just a normal commuter rail, rail route. And it is growing and people are voluntarily choosing to use it and it's profitable and successful. So I think that's an outstanding example of how the private sector can, in certain places, use rail to, uh, to add to our transportation mix. Furthermore, they use extensive tolling in Florida to fund, you know, you have to provide roads and highways for these for this growing population and they're not doing much of that with general taxes they're just allowing the people who come to florida like we have i've been to florida a lot for vacation the past couple of years you know we're paying for part of that via the tolls we use when we, when we travel there so i think the the tolling system they have is great the new private train system they have down there which is growing and expanding is great and uh, they're doing a lot of things right in transportation as well well that train system is stellar i mean my brother got married just a couple of months ago, like 400 person wedding, literally on the train, <laughs> yeah. on the train, not on the train. It wasn't they're, like the Warriors. The quiet car. But they, they were not happy about it on the quiet car. <laughs> but everyone was taking the train. You could land in Miami. You could land in Fort Lauderdale and take it down to the wedding. It was great. All right. Well, we will look for that article in our uh, upcoming annual report. Um, okay. We'll close out the way we always do. And Elias, we will begin uh, with you. What is something that you're keeping track of over the next week? This week, well, last week, the state started their process of um, disenrolling the Medicaid um, recipients that are no longer eligible for the program. They're finally getting through, working through the uh, process of checking. And so we're hopefully in the next week going to be starting to see the data for, um, you know, how those checks are going. Um, Missouri was one of the last states in the country to really start this process but they are going and i'm hoping that data will be coming to see that um you know missouri will hopefully be cleaning up these roles and saving some money on the uh, medicaid program david interested in in following up on uh, cato institute did a podcast on bucky's which is the the gas station chain they would probably recoil at the calling them a gas station chain i think they I think they're the Taj Mahal of gas stations, but how as they expand around the country, they're getting receiving significant tax subsidies at their new locations. We wrote about this uh, a couple of years ago when they were getting tax subsidies for a new Bucky's in Springfield, and competitors who've been based in Springfield a long time started justifiably and correctly objecting to the tax subsidies for them. So, I uh, want to check out the Cato Institute podcast on it. And uh, keep writing on it on it here because it appears that among 
Among many, I'm sure there's many fine aspects of Bucky's, even though in the end it's just a gas station here, people. But the idea, they seem to have tax subsidies as a big part of their expansion strategy, sort of like Missouri's own Bass Pro. Great company, great store. It's unfortunate they make such heavy use of tax subsidies. And I want to want to stay on this as Bucky's and their other their other competitors continue to grow around the country. And Avery, you got to be you got to take it easy making fun of. Making fun of Bucky's, they might they might come at you, David. But I'm going to be tracking the nuclear progress in the federal and U.S. Congress. I'll be tracking that, and then also I'll be looking at four day school weeks. It's growing in Missouri. How is that affected? All right, and as always, plenty more at ShowMeInstitute.org. Elias, David, Avery, thank you very much. (laughs) 